Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. radar went up when you were watching that and you were saying that is not fair at all and I wonder how many times fairness is really more a matter of perspective because I imagine there's a dietitian or someone that's into nutrition here in the crowd that is saying she was the one that was blessed because this body does not need a two-liter Bottle, a bottle of Coke, as uh, maybe some of yours don't either. So, uh, but uh, as we jump into today, this today, we're going to be talking a little bit about fairness, about injustice, about suffering, and maybe some of the questions that you're asking in your life uh, right now. We are in a series called Major Messages in the Minor Prophets, which are the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and we're just looking at some of the major messages. They're minor because they're short books, not because they don't matter. Uh, and today we're going to get into Habakkuk. And uh, Habakkuk, I don't really actually know how to say his name properly, uh, whether it's Habakkuk or Habakkuk or Habakkuk or Habakkuk. I don't really know. But uh, a lot of the, uh, the, the commentators or people believe that his name comes from a Hebrew word that means to embrace which would be fitting because in the book he is going to deal with the matters of suffering and injustice. And that's why the fig tree is there because uh, he's going to say something about a fig tree and and, and that's that's the big idea of the day. But as we walk through the book today, and the title of the message today is A Dialogue in Suffering and Injustice. And the reason is, is that if we walk through the book, which we're gonna do today, It's more of a dialogue than a sermon. Uh, A number of the other minor prophets that we've been preaching are uh, preach more like or read more like sermons, where he's preaching them to the nation. In this case, instead of speaking to the people, Habakkuk is speaking to God, and he's asking God these big questions. And so he begins and he asks God a question about suffering and justice, and God responds, and he doesn't like the response, and so he asks him another question, and God responds. And I think it's illustrative of our lives because the journey of suffering is not a sermon where, you know, you come to church and you hear something, you're like, okay, I'm good. Suffering is often long. The valley is often dark, isn't it? And as we walk through this book today, we're going to see, we're going to see how we walk through suffering, how Habakkuk walked through suffering and how God walked him through and communicated. Some of you are here today and you have a broken heart today. Someone has walked out on you. They've betrayed you. Some of your kids have hurt you, maybe become estranged from you. And it is a long Journey For some of you today, maybe it's loss in your life that someone has died before it's time or or they've died recently, maybe not recently, maybe a long time ago and you are still suffering and struggling. For some of you, maybe there's questions as you look at the TV, as you look at the news and you're like, I don't understand how God is allowing the injustice and suffering that's going on in the world today. For some of you, it was a diagnosis that you got this past week or recently 
And for others, maybe it's just you've worked so hard in your life, and it seems like everybody else has it going on, and things just really haven't worked out for you. And you're at a point in your life, and you're just saying, like, God, like, why? This message is for you. This message is for people around you. And so I want to jump into Habakkuk today, and I want you, uh, the hope is that maybe not today, but someday, soon, that you would be able to say what Habakkuk says at the very end of his book. The very final words is he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And that is the hope today, and i just love to pray, Lord God, would you do a work that we can't even see in this room here today because you're working in our hearts. Would you put a new song in our souls today? Would you speak? Would you save in this place today? And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, what we're going to do, let me just give the outline for the message here. Uh, it's uh, Habakkuk's burden, and by the way, this is the outline for the book, so you can go home and read it. It's just three chapters. We're going to hustle through it today, but um, first of all, Habakkuk shares his burden with God. God responds. Then he shares his objection to God's response, and God responds, and then he comes to a place where he, I just call it his recitation something that he shares over and over again. And so uh, we're going to jump into that today, and we'll just start in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where he says, Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? He's talking to God here. Oh, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why? Do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now here's the scene of what he's looking at. He's living in somewhere around the, the end of the 7th century B.C., uh, when Judah, the southern kingdom of God, the southern house of God, had plagued themselves once again with a host of horrific sins. So they weren't following God, they were following their own ways. And I think it's important that we understand that when there is sin in the land, or sin in the land results in suffering in the society, that, that, that when sin just uh, you know, is perpetuated and proliferates throughout, the, throughout our land, it just brings about uh, suffering. And I think it's you know, true that some of the suffering in our lives is self-induced. It's because of our own sin. But it's also true that maybe a lot of our suffering is because of the sin of people around us. Uh, we see this uh, in the Minor Prophets. Like just a few weeks ago, we were preaching Amos, and we see greed in the people. 
And, uh, you know, people were living these very wealthy lives, but the problem was, which wasn't necessarily bad, but they were building wealth on the backs of the poor. And so there was poverty and injustice and slavery that became the norm in God's land, in God's people. And God, Amos comes hard at them because of it, but uh, you see that the, the greediness and the sin of greed led to suffering on the part of so many people. We see this also in the covenant relationships back in that day. King Manasseh, who was one of the most evil kings of the day, he basically, when he became king, said, I'm gonna bring in other uh, gods, the Baals and the Ashtoreths, I'm gonna build shrines to them. And he actually allowed temple prostitution to occur. And so people would be going to the temple, for like the worst of, 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 of things that you can think of. And, and it was breaking apart the covenant relationships, the second most important covenant relationship you can have between a husband and a wife. And so you can just imagine the suffering that occurs when that starts to break apart the society. And so then there was also this perverted justice. And so they would take the judges or the elders and they put, put them at the city gates. And so when there was injustice occurring, the, the people would go to the elders and, or, the, or the justices and they would plead their case and the people were paying off. The people that had all the money were paying off the justices so that so many we're living in injustice, and there was violence, and there was craziness. And I don't know in Habakkuk's life how it was personally hitting him, because it's one thing when you see it on the TV, but it's totally different when it affects your child, or it affects you and your life. And Habakkuk is saying, how long is this going to go on, God? And it burdens his heart. Now, let me just ask you today, what's burdening your heart? What's suffering, what injustice, what's been in your soul for maybe some time, some anger that you just can't get over? How long? I want you to know the journey of suffering involves asking that question. In fact, if we read the book of Psalms repeatedly over and over again, the psalmist asks, how long? Uh, I'll just give you a quick sampling. Psalm 6, 3, my soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Psalm 13, 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 62, 3, how long will you, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him, leaning like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? Psalm 82, 2, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And so the psalmists are just showing us that when we're suffering, they're, they're asking these questions. And I think the application for us is that there is a reverent realness and rawness in this journey of suffering. It's reverent that I would approach God and that I would ask God, but nevertheless that I would ask him the questions. And let me tell you, God is big enough to handle the questions, and to answer them, which we'll see in a little bit. Now, J.D. Greer uh, makes this quote. He says, doubt happens when the superficialities of your faith meet the realities of the world. 
And maybe some of you today are doubting, or maybe you've been doubting for some time. Maybe you're just like, I don't even understand. I don't even know if I believe in God because there are some major inconsistencies, seeming inconsistencies in my life and in the world. And I would just invite you, seek God like we sang in that song. You will find him, and he will answer those questions. And so uh, Habakkuk asks these questions, and God responds. Verse 5, chapter 1, he says, God, is God talking? He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, uh, let me just translate that into uh, some different language. God says, listen, I'm doing a work but you can't handle the truth of what I'm doing. Uh, I'm working, I am working. I know as you look at the world and you look at your life and you see all the different things that don't seem to make sense and you're asking why and you're asking how long, I just wanna confirm, I'm working, I see it. And I'm caring and I'm uh, I'm working in your life. Um, One writer says it this way, at any given point, God is doing about 10,000 things in your life and you are aware of three of them. Uh, we can't see. In fact, if you read the story of Job, Job you know, lived in just incredible suffering, and the, the crazy thing about it is he was a righteous man. If you read the first part of Job, you're just like, dude, this guy loves the Lord, and he is a great parent, and he is doing it all right. And yet, there is major suffering that occurs. He loses his wife, he loses his family, he loses his flock. And the interesting thing about it is we read it from this side of it and we can see the story behind the story of his life but he couldn't see any of it. And God is just saying to Habakkuk, look, I know you can't see it all and you wouldn't understand it but I am working in the midst of the brokenness of your life. I thought it might just be helpful real quick to give uh, four purposes to your pain. Because in the midst of the pain of your life, God is, there's a purpose. And he is working in your life. And you better take a picture if you want this, because I'm going through this really fast as a different sermon. But God is preparing you for greater purpose. James 1, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the that, that the, the, the trials produce perseverance, perseverance, uh, character, and character produces hope. So God is working you to prepare you for what he has for you later in life. Number two, God is correcting our perspective. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that God whispers in our pleasures. Uh, he, he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain, and it's often in the pain of life and the struggle of life that we walk closely with God. Uh, God is proclaiming his power. It's in my weakness that I am strong, and I learned that in the brokenness and in the pain of life, and God is reminding us of his presence, that he is there even in the midst of it, and we can find joy and I hope in God even in the midst of the suffering. And so God is saying, look, I know you don't see it, but I am working and I am doing something in you and I'm doing something in my nation for you. And, and, uh, and then he explains them. He's like, if you really want to know, I'll tell you what I'm doing. Verse 6, 9, and 11, God says, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, He says, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own, that's their homes, 
He says, they all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Now he starts to explain, like, these are mean dudes. You will not like these guys. And they gather these captives, and then they say, he says, they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose might is their God. Now, Habakkuk hears this, and effectively what God is saying is, listen, the evil in my people, in my land, has become so great, they have been so desirous of evil that I'm going to give it to them. If they want to live these lives and they want to live in this, in this, this evil, then I will, it's come to the point where I'm just going to have to let them embrace it. And so, as you know, if you know the story, if you know the, the, the timeline, Babylon comes and they take Judah, Jerusalem, they invade them and they take their homes and they take so many of the people and they exile them and take them back to Babylon. God is explaining like I'm doing this and ultimately good will come out of it because if I just allow evil to continue to flourish in the land, it won't be good for anything. But through this, people will realize that only I can be their God. They will turn back to me and we will rebuild this place, which you can learn about in Ezra and Nehemiah. God says, like, I'm working. But Habakkuk doesn't really like the response. I don't know how many of you have asked God something before, and he's given you a response. You know, I, 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 can, can I have the second option? All right, and so Habakkuk, you know, shares with us his objection in the book. He says, are you uh, not from everlasting? Now, I'm not sure if that's like an encouragement or if that's, you know, sort of a putting God down or what it is because he's like, are you not from everlasting? Like, are you not eternal? Can't you do this in a way that suffering doesn't occur? He says, oh, Lord, my God, my holy one, we shall not die. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You, God, who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why? Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows the man more righteous than he. And so what he's saying here is he's saying, hold on, hold on just a minute. You're saying you're gonna take a nation that is more evil than us, and you're gonna bless them. You're gonna, in a, in a sense, you're gonna give them our homes, and they're going to be more prosperous for a season. Uh, his first complaint was toward the work of God's hand. Now his complaint is towards the character of God's being. And he actually continues on, if you continue to read the chapter, which you should, uh, and he uses this illustration and he says, hey God, it's almost like we are fish swimming in the sea and you and the Babylonians, the Chaldeans are coming along in a boat and there's a hook that's coming down and they are hooking us like fish. How on earth could you idly sit by and allow this evil and suffering to happen? 
See, Habakkuk has a real problem with evil and suffering, as so many people have had throughout history. Uh, Epicurus in 270 BC, if I can go philosophical just for a moment, was a philosopher, and he introduced what often is known as the problem of, of, of evil, and it's sort of like, how can a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? To which one writer says, well, show me a good people, and I'll answer the question. If you first show me a good people, because all of us in some way have sin inside of us. We have the root inside of us. And so we are in some way all in this together. But Epicurus asks all these questions. He says, if God is willing to prevent evil, but not able, then is is he not omnipotent? Is he able, but not willing? Uh, Is he both able and willing? Then whence come evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why would we even call him God? He's asking these questions which, by the way, there's answers to these questions. These have been answered for the last, for the hundreds and hundreds of years. And by the way, just real quick, what Epicurus doesn't enter into the equation is the free will that God gives us, which is what brings about the death and devastation that occurs. But nevertheless, I just wanted to point out that people have been asking these big questions for years that are not new questions. And so if you're sort of in that place where you're asking these questions, I just wanted to let you know today, there are answers. And Habakkuk was asking these questions even before uh, Epicurus was. And so he continues on then, and, and, and Habakkuk says something at that point that's really significant. He says, I'm gonna take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say, that's God will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now, this was a figure of speech that he was using in that day that a lot of the prophets used, and they said, I'm gonna go to the watch post, the watchtower, and I'm just gonna stand and I'm gonna wait. In the city, there was a watchtower, and so the uh, soldiers or the farmers would climb the watchtower and for all night, they would sit and they would look out over the city and they would just wait to gather information about what was occurring in the city. And so what Habakkuk is saying, he's like, I'm just going to go and I'm going to sit and I'm going to wait on God to answer me about these big questions of life suffering, and injustice. There is a very real waiting that has to occur in our lives when we're walking through this. In fact, there's a quote I wanted to put up here, the heights of hope can only come from the depths of our faith. And in these moments of life, in fact, in every moment of life, we ought to learn what it means to wait upon God, to just go and to be with God. I brought along today a couple things that um, I just want to show you. Normally, I have a preaching Bible, which is small, but today I brought my study Bible, and I love this thing. If I ever lose this thing, oh man, I hope somebody returns it to me, because it just has, through the years the things that God has said to me. In the darkest, in the darkest moments, 
Some of them big, like the loss of my best friend. Some of them not so big, just like Thursday morning when I woke up at 3 a.m. and I just felt not awesome about myself, about life. I have a pretty good life, but still, 3 a.m., it's like the worst time. And I just get up and I'm like, Lord, like I just need to read. I just need to be remembered like you are working. Even when I can't see it. And I'm writing these things down and I'm underlining. And this thing is just filled with the words of God, but also the words of the Spirit of God, where when I'm walking through it, and he's just speaking to me. And some of you, when you're going through a hard time, you're thinking, like, give me a phone to call someone to talk to, and I would just suggest to you, you might just want to pick this up and start reading. Because God has spoken eternal words of life. Like, he is eternal, And other people may say good things, but he's going to say God things that will sustain you and make your feet like the feet of a deer so you can get over the hurdle that's in front of you in those moments. This is my my journal. Some of you are like, dude, I'm not a journal guy. I'm not really a journal guy either, okay? I'm not like sitting there narrating my thoughts to God, but this is almost more, I'm bulleting things and writing things. I've got, it's actually, I bought it, it's got sections in it, and I intentionally looked for one with sections. In the first section, I just started writing down scriptures that I want to rehearse every day in my mind. Because I don't know if you know this, but your emotions don't have a mind. And so you have to tell them what to think, right? If they do have a mind, it's not a well-developed mind. And so they're thinking things all the time that are wrong. And so I just want to remind myself. And so the first scripture I put in here is Psalm 91 through 2. which says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had uh, formed the earth or the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I'm just re- rehearsing this every day in my life so that when I have those moments, I have those seasons in my life, I just remember, like, I'm not in this on my own, and I am literally dwelling In the house of God. I guess I'm not literally dwelling in the house of God. I am spiritually dwelling in his house. This is his house today, right? And I'm just rehearsing these things. Then I have like a section where I'm like day-to-day stuff, and then I have a prayer list, and like I am writing these things down. And somebody will say, that's awesome, because like a year from now, you'll be able to see where you were and what God did. And I would say, that's true, but I can't even remember what God said last week half the time. I preach sermons, and I can't remember what I preached last week, so I have to write these things down when God says them in the midst of the brokenness of the life, of my life, so that I can rehearse them and memorize and remember, and just, like, it's so critical, and that, that, that kind of is what God tells him as he continues in the next verse and he says, the Lord answered me. Like he waited upon God in the watchtower. And the Lord answered, he says. And what did God say? He said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. 
And so what he's saying here is, is I want you to make, like you need to understand what I said and then you're going to write it down. You're going to put it on tablets. Some believe that this is sort of linking it back to Moses when Moses wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablets. And he's saying, like, put it on tablets because there is a long season of suffering that is in front of you. And the only thing that will sustain you in the suffering is the vision that I'm going to make all things new. And we're going to rebuild this place. And yes, it's coming, but it's not coming yet. And through it all, you can find joy and you can find hope in me in the midst of the suffering. So write it down. And then he says, so that he who runs may run. And so what he's basically saying here is back in that day, they didn't have like Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is to post what God says. And so they had these couriers. And so they would write these things down and they would send them out throughout the land. They would run through the land and they would share the good news and the hope of God. And then he says something that none of us probably want to hear, but that we need to hear. He says, for still, God says, still the vision awaits the appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie if it seems slow. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. He says, listen, I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to give you a vision of what's going to occur, how I'm going to make all things right in the midst of this, but you're going to have to wait for it. Um, the book doesn't really end with that bow that we often want. I mean, in a sense it does, because he says, I'll tell you how to live joyfully in the midst of the suffering, but what he doesn't say is this suffering will end soon. There is a very real waiting in the Christian life. Some of you have been waiting for a lot of years for your kids that are estranged to come back. Some of you are waiting for the day when you will see your loved one that went to be with Jesus. Some of you are going through incredibly difficult things and you say, I don't even know how I'm going to make it through tomorrow, and you are waiting and God says, in that moment, write it down. Write down the promises. Make the promises visual and read them and repeat them. And you can find hope in the midst of it. And it's not just about writing them and reading them. And in 2.4, he says, behold, his soul, he's speaking about the Babylonian king. He says, his soul is puffed up and it's not, uh, it's not upright with him. In other words, yeah, you're right. He's not, he is evil and there is injustice that's going on, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, for anyone that's a New Testament scholar, you've studied the book of Romans, you've studied the history of the church, this is a massively important verse. It's the same verse that Paul quotes in Romans 1, 16 and 17 when it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the just will live by faith. And it's the same verse that sparked the Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther read it and he said, it's by faith that we live, not by works. The just shall live by faith. And often we think that it is a salvation verse, but in its original context, it was a suffering verse. And, and it's, it's quoted three times in the New Testament. 
Romans 1.16, but the final time, or 1.17, the final time that it's quoted is actually in the context of suffering, Hebrews 10.32 through 38. He says, but you will recall, this is the Apostle Paul, but you will recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle and sufferings. I'm not going to read all that. And he ends and he says... Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous shall live by faith. In other words, you will live by faith in the waiting and the writing of the promises of God. You will have faith. You will live by faith in the midst of it, and it will be your hope and your joy. There was a a study that was done a number of years ago at Johns Hopkins University, some, somewhere back in the 50s, 1950 or so. And uh, these um, scientists wanted to see how long rats could swim and, uh, and then introduce some different elements of hope and see if that changed anything about how long they could swim. And so they put these rats in water and they learned that rats could swim for about 10 minutes if they put them in water, and I'm sure it was very humane, and they, you know, took care of them when they started to sing and pull, pull, pulled them out. I didn't really read that much about the study, but uh, so so they put them in the water, and they 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 discern that they can live for about ten minutes or so, and and then uh, they said, like, let's see what changes when we just introduce the element of hope. And so every minute or so, they'd pick the rats out for about six seconds. That's it put them back in the water. And the duration which they could wade went from 10 minutes to 60 hours. It's crazy that in our lives when we see hope, when we realize there is hope that we're going to get through this, Uh, It gives us the strength. It gives us the ability. And so what God is doing is he's saying, you're going to live by faith. I'm going to give you hope. And and so what occurs in the next chapter, in chapter 2 then, is uh, the five woes to the Chaldeans. And I can't take time to read all of that, but you can take time this afternoon or this week and you can read it. But basically what God says, yes, I will deal justly upon the injustices and the sin that is occurring, and the day is coming when all of the suffering that is going on in your life will come to an end, and I will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and I will create the most amazing place, and I will be there in your midst in an entirely new way. And that's the hope that we have, amen? And, and, and he's just telling him, like, yes, you're experiencing this, but the day is coming. And Habakkuk hears this. And by the way, through it, like you see God in the midst of it all along the way, in the midst of the woes, the judgments that he is explaining. And so this comes to the place where in the third chapter, now Habakkuk starts to recite something. I call it his recitation because 
Uh, most commentators, if you read the end of the book, believe that he sang this, that this became a song that they would sing, sort of like the songs that we sang this morning. And so you can read through this. And, and Habakkuk responds once he understands. He says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. You know what the fame is that he's talking about here? He's talking about when God let Moses and his people out of slavery some 800 years earlier. And he's saying, like, I've heard of what you did. I've heard of how you set the people free and you gave them a new place and a new land and your presence in a special way. And he prays, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. Man, that's a prayer, I think. I, I pray that. That's in my, it's one of the prayers I pray every day. I've heard of your fame, Lord. Repeat your works in our day, in the Farmington Valley, in our lifetime. We want to see this place literally change. We want to see the most, the most uh, uh, illiterate generation growing up in the history of America, excuse me, the most biblically illiterate generation in the history of America that's growing up here. We want to see this change in our lifetime that they would know the works of God and the ways of God that we would teach them, oh, we're going to put everything into this, that the kingdom of God would come and be done in our time and our place. And he's just praying this. And he gets pumped up. He, if you go through the next 14 or 15 verses, he's just like, yes, God, you can do this. You're going to do this in the midst of the suffering. And then verse 16, he says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. In other words, even though his heart was pounding, he realized that there was still some bad news that needed good news to follow. And he says, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. See, Habakkuk has shown us the journey of suffering, uh, I want to just quickly review where we've been today with five major messages in learning to trust, because this is really what it's about, is lessons in learning to trust God in the midst of the suffering. Number one, faith journey involves questions. You should ask them. I think you should write them, because in my life, it's more of a conversation, an ongoing conversation, than a one-time dispensation. And so I'm asking a question one week and waiting for weeks or months for God to answer Faith journey involves asking questions. Number two, the faith journey requires waiting. Waiting upon God, getting in the, the watchtower. The faith journey involves remembering and repeating and reciting. That's why we sing these songs. We read these scriptures. We memorize. We rehearse these over and over again. The faith journey results in submitting. Habakkuk came to the point where he submitted and just said, okay, God, I'm going to embrace my time in my place, in my circumstances, knowing that you are working. The faith journey finds joy in God. It's in the struggle that God is there and we find joy in him. And that's what led him to conclude the chapter, the verse, the book, with these words. Though the fig tree should not blossom, he was a farmer, or he lived in a farming land, by the way, which is why this matters. Though the fig tree is not blossoming, nor 
fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like the feet of a deer's so that I can tread on high places. I can get over the hurdles that are in my way. I want to close with this illustration, then we're going to sing a few songs. But Arthur Ashe was an American professional tennis player. Uh, He did incredible things. When he was six years old, he wanted to play football, but his parents wouldn't let him. And so he started to play tennis. Turned out that he grew up and uh, he was the only, the first African-American man ever to win the singles at Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, and the Australian Open. And in the years that he grew up, this was huge because of the social dynamics that were going on in our nation and in our world. Uh, But Midlife, he contracted AIDS because of a blood transfusion that he had been given in open heart surgery. And so his life completely changed, later leading to him dying several years later. And while he was laying in the hospital bed, one of his fans sent a letter to him and said, why did God, why? Did God have to select you for such a bad disease? So he wrote a response, and this was his response. He said there were 50 million children that started playing tennis. 500,000 learned professional tennis. 50,000 came to circuit. 5,000 reached the Grand Slam. 50 reached Wimbledon. Four reached the semifinals. Only two reached the finals. And when I was standing at the Winner's Cup, with the Winner's Cup in my hand, I'd never asked, why me? So now he says that I'm in pain, how can I ask God, why me? Happiness keeps you strong, trials keep you, excuse me, happiness keeps you sweet, trials keep you strong, sorrows keep you human, Failure keeps you humble. Success keeps you glowing, but only faith keeps you going. Sometimes you are not satisfied with your life, while many other people around the world are dreaming of living your life. A child on a farm sees a plane fly overhead. He dreams of flying. When the pilot on the plane dreams of being back at the farmhouse, returning home. That's life. Enjoy yours. If wealth is a secret to happiness, then the rich should be dancing on the streets. But only poor kids do that. If power ensures security, then VIPs should walk unguarded, but those who live simply sleep. But it's only those who live simply that sleep soundly. If beauty and fame bring ideal relationships, then celebrities should have the best marriages. And he concludes saying, live simply, 
be happy. Walk humbly before God and men and love genuinely for God our Father is love. Think again before asking, why me? Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.